Father, thank you for this word that has just been read. And we ask now by your spirit that you help us in the preaching of this word, that the truth proclaimed may shape our hearts so that we respond rightly to your word with faith and obedience. Oh Lord, we want you to be glorified in this holy moment. We want your church to be built up. We want the lost to be found. We want all of this to be done in the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this summer we've been in a summer series that we're calling Heroes of the Faith. We've been looking at Old Testament heroes and preaching on the high point of their particular story. And so far we've covered Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Ruth, and Samuel. And they are all very well-known heroes and heroines in the Bible. Now every time we do a series like this, and we've done this you know, a few times over the years, it's usually well-received. Everyone enjoys studying familiar characters and familiar stories. It's really exciting to, to go through these um, in more in depth. But friends, it's also risky to preach these type of sermons. Because anytime you teach on a biblical hero, you do run the risk of moralizing their story. Anytime you preach on a biblical hero, your sermon can make the mistake of adopting one of the deadly bees of preaching. In Brian Chappell's book, Christ-Centered Preaching, he warns against the three deadly bees of teaching. He says some sermons can take a biblical text and just boil it down to a simple takeaway. You either be good, be disciplined, or be like this or that character. And so, of course, in our series, there is a risk that our sermons can come across like a be-like message, where you're simply exhorted to be like one of these heroes of the faith. So you might walk away hearing a sermon inspired by that particular biblical character's faith or courage or perseverance, and your instinct is to want to go out now and to imitate that faith or that courage or that perseverance. And there really is nothing wrong with imitation, per se. You know, there's nothing wrong with trying to conform our behavior to match that of those whom we consider to be godly examples, whether in the Bible or just people that we know in our own lives. There's nothing wrong with imitation. It's just not enough to imitate. It's not enough to conform outward behavior if your inward heart attitude and affections go untouched. You see, it's ironic that we focus so much of our attention on David's outward actions and outward behavior when, when really his story, not just in this chapter, but his whole story in 1 Samuel, is all about teaching God's people to look past outward appearances and to look to inner realities, to look into the heart. David is known in Scripture, first and foremost, as a man after God's own heart. And so if we preach on David, and if the gist of our message is all about imitating him, conforming to his actions, uh, doing what he does on the battlefields of our own lives, facing our own giants, 
well, then we very well might miss the main point of this story and misidentify ourselves within the story. What I mean is that our instinct when we read David and Goliath is to identify ourselves with David in this story. When readers are actually supposed to identify ourselves more with the Israelites in the story, the ones who are cowering and paralyzed with fear. You see, the original audience of 1 Samuel were obviously the Israelites. They were the people of God. And so when they first read 1 Samuel, when they got to chapter 17, they would have read it not primarily as some kind of inspirational story for them to apply just on a personal level, but they're reading this together as a people, and they would have read this as an episode within their story, the story of the people of God. And so our text, 1 Samuel 17, advances that's that overall larger story of Scripture, that story of God's self-initiative to redeem his creation from the curse of sin by, by means of a chosen people, and particularly by means of a chosen anointed leader. And in 1 Samuel, David is that anointed leader. So the readers of this book of 1 Samuel are meant to see him not primarily as an example for them to personally imitate, but as a chosen leader who achieves for them something they cannot do for themselves, who achieves a victory on behalf of God's people. His accomplishments, they establish a new reality for the people of God. And his subsequent kingship gives shape and identity to what it means to be the people of God. So the point is that the story of David and Goliath has a primary application not for our personal stories, but for the story of Israel and the story of God's overall redemption. And I think what was going to help us to properly read and to study this book, or this, this chapter together, is for us to is just for us to see and to consider how David is functioning within this story. Within 1 Samuel 17, how is David serving as a character? What's his role within the plot? I think that will help us to better read and apply it. So um, I think by, uh, by, by doing so, it's going to be more evident to us that he's more than just an example for us to imitate, but he's playing a larger role. So let me show you three things. Uh, three ways in which David is functioning as a character. So if you want to follow along, there's an outline in your bulletin. First, he functions as the people's conscience. Second, as the people's champion. And third, David functions as the prefigured Christ. So that's where we're going in our roadmap today. Uh, let's start by considering how David functions as the people's conscience. David is Israel's conscience. When he appears in the narrative, he starts making people uncomfortable because his response to Goliath's challenge convicts everyone around him. His faith exposes their lack of it, and his zeal for the Lord shames them because they know that that's how they ought to be feeling. And that's how a conscious conscience works. It pricks us, it convicts us, it condemns us if our hearts 
are not in the right place. Now, this is such a long chapter. We obviously don't have time to go into all the details, but let me just kind of briefly set the stage for this encounter between David and Goliath. Now, last week we were in 1 Samuel 15, and and Minister Henry did a great job of, of expounding on that, and we learned there about the pivotal moment in Saul's kingship where he demonstrated that he feared man far more than he feared God, that he was more concerning himself with pleasing others than with pleasing the Lord. So in 1 Samuel 16, the next chapter, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. Saul's no longer fit anymore to lead Israel or to deliver her from her enemies. And so when we actually encounter him within our chapter, he's just as fearful as the army he's supposed to be leading. Now this, of course, is in contrast to a young shepherd boy that we're introduced actually earlier back in chapter 16. And we're told there that he, in contrast to Saul, is now filled with the Spirit of God and he's quietly anointed to be the next king of Israel within this private ceremony. And so as readers, by the time you get to chapter 17, you're you're queued up with high expectations for this young man. God's going to be doing something great with with this young guy. And so, at, at, and, and his moment for David begins to shine, uh, his moment to shine begins here in chapter 17. Uh, it begins with the Israelite army and the Philistine army uh, coming together, encountering each other, uh, ready to do battle. Now, if you're not familiar with the Philistines, they were a Canaanite people who lived within these five capital cities that were located in the coastal plains to the southwest of Judah. So if you can kind of orient yourself as to where they are in relation to Israel. And they were just a constant thorn in Israel's side uh, during these years. Earlier in 1 Samuel 9, we learned that it was um, to, defeat the Is- to defeat the Philistines was the principal cause for requesting a king over Israel in the first place. So the Philistines were a major threat to them. And that king that they uh, received was Saul. He, he was Israel's first king. And he was initially successful in pushing the uh, Philistines out of Israel's central highlands. But by this time, the Philistines were gaining more ground. And the battle was being fought in the foothills between Israel and Philistia. And so there was much at stake in this battle because the enemy was beginning to encroach on Israel. And so... The stage is set for us. Now, in verse 4, we're given a description, a lengthy one, uh, of Goliath, who was the Philistine champion. And he's described here as an immense, intimidating physical presence. I know we commonly call him a giant, but of course, and he wasn't a giant in the fairy tale sense. But he was an extremely tall man. Uh, The Hebrew uh, text of the Old Testament says that he was six cubits and a span. And so that works out to be over nine feet tall. That's that's pretty large. Now, uh, the the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and also uh, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, those manuscripts, they say four cubits and a span. So that actually equates to about uh, six feet and nine inches. So that's a little bit more like, you know, an NBA player size. Uh, but either way, whether it's over nine feet or six nine, he would have towered over the average Israelite soldier in those days. 
We're told that his coat of mail itself weighed 120 pounds. Can you imagine that he's able to carry that around in battle? And he was armed with a javelin strapped to his back, and in each hand he held a sword and a spear. And we're told that that tip of the spear itself weighed 14 and a half pounds. Just imagine just being able to, to thrust and to, and to throw a spear like that. I mean, this description here is telling us that this man is strapped with muscle and deadly weapons. And he issues a bold challenge. Goliath challenges Israel to what's known as representative combat. It's where you have a contest and each army sends a champion to represent them in single combat. And the two men are going to determine the outcome of the battle and the fate of each army. It was a strategy that was used by ancient peoples in order to limit bloodshed and to limit the loss of life on on either side. Now, you would think that this idea of having a contest would have been a relief to most of the Israelite soldiers because they realize now they no longer have to fight. Someone else is going to do it for them. But instead of relief, there's this collective response of fear and dismay because there's no one in the camp who is willing to accept the challenge. But then in verse 12, the spotlight is immediately thrust back onto David, the youngest of eight sons of Jesse. And unlike the impressive, seemingly invincible Goliath, David is described for us as a shepherd boy, not even old enough to be conscripted into the army. So that means he was probably just under 20 years old, which was the cutoff age to be drafted. So he, he still lived at home running errands for his father. He was bringing rations to the front line on occasion, especially bringing it to his three older brothers who were in the army. Now we're told that for 40 days, Goliath had been issuing the same challenge morning and evening. And one day, David arrives just in time to hear one of Goliath's speeches. And he hears the blasphemous things that this Philistine is saying about the Lord. And he also learns about the substantial reward for the one who will be able to defeat Goliath. And he's surprised. Why has no one taken up this challenge? And here in verse 26, starting there, that's where David begins to serve as Israel's conscience. His honest questions convict the fighting men for their unwillingness to fight and to defend the honor of the Lord. Look at verse 26 again. And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now to that, David's oldest brother, Eliab, gets angry with him. And he essentially accuses David of being this conceited kid who just came up to the front line to see some action and to criticize grown men for their inaction. But Eliab's rebuke of David says more about Eliab than it does about David. Eliab's conscience was pricked. As someone who was more concerned with his own survival, survival, Eliab was irritated that David is actually more concerned with the Lord's honor. David's response to Goliath shames these grown men who can't deny that this boy actually does have more courage and a greater zeal for the Lord than they do. 
But don't get the wrong impression here, friends. David responds this way, not because he's naturally more courageous or more zealous than any other man in the entire army. No, the only reason why David is uniquely responding in this way to Goliath's challenge is because he uniquely is seeing things from God's perspective. Apparently, that's what it means to be a man after God's own heart, is that you are someone who sees reality with God's eyes. Back in chapter 16, the previous chapter, the big lesson learned there was that David was anointed king in that, in, 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 uh, because, not because of his physical impressiveness. It was because of what was in his heart. That while humans are looking at outward appearance and making judgments based on that, the Lord looks at the heart. God sees what cannot be seen or cannot be understood by the human eye. The Lord sees into the heart. So that means he knows our attitudes and affections. He knows the disposition and the desires of the human heart. And so as a man after God's own heart, David himself possesses this kind of spiritual sight. He can see things from God's perspective. And so he saw realities that his peers around him didn't see. So let me give you an example. Look with me at verse 25. Look at verse 25. And there the men of Israel, they look at Goliath and notice what they say. They, 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 they see this man. So, so, so when they look at Goliath, they see this man and this man with all of his physical prowess and his outward advantages. That's what they see. But look at verse 26. All David sees is this uncircumcised Philistine who is defying the armies of the living God. That's what he uniquely sees. And it's no, it's no small detail here for David to call Goliath uncircumcised. Because unlike everyone else, David is seeing the situation in covenantal terms. Remember, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign that you were a part of God's covenant community, and thereby you were a recipient of his covenant promises that he made all the way back to Abraham. So while everyone else saw an invincible warrior, David looked out there, and he saw someone outside of the covenant community of God who worships false gods, dead idols, and is, who dares to defy the living God. That's what he saw. It, it appears at this point that only David has those eyes to see beyond outward appearances, beyond how big and scary Goliath looks which is why he is suitable to serve as the people's conscience because he can remind them of what they can't see. He can remind them of who they are as the covenant people of God and who God is as the living God, the Lord of hosts. And now it's up to them. Now it's up to Israel to respond to what David is seeing and what he is telling them. How are they going to respond? That's the key question. Are they going to respond with annoyance and irritation at David or with repentance? Well, friends, we need to recognize ourselves, not so much in David in this story, but as in these Israelites, because 
if we're honest with ourselves, we'd admit that we would probably react in the same way. Whenever we face obstacles in our path, whenever enemies impede our progress, we often respond, like the Israelites, with fear. Or sometimes we just resign ourselves to defeat. So before we can imitate David in his courage, before he can function as our example, he needs to serve as our conscience, convicting us, pricking us, and similarly reminding us that we have to start seeing things beyond outward appearances. I think some of you are being confronted right now with a big and scary challenge in life with an obstacle before you that intimidates you and it just seems insurmountable. Maybe this could be something or someone in the workplace or in the classroom or in your ministry. And you wish that right now, man, if I just had David's faith, if I just had David's courage. But what you need first are David's eyes. You need to be able to see beyond outward appearances and to recognize that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Do you see that? Do you see the Lord of hosts with you, around you, in you? You need eyes, you need the eyes of your heart open to see who you truly are as a covenant child of God and who he is as the Lord of hosts, the living God. So if you're feeling convicted right now because you're realizing that just like these Israelites, you've been looking at your problems all wrong, that you've been looking at them just from the world's perspective and earthly perspective and not from God's, well, then now is the time to change. Now is the time to repent. And now is the time to pray for a heart after God's own heart, and for a vision that sees reality with God's own eyes. I believe that's what many of us need to be praying right now, praying for that heart and those eyes, that vision to see beyond the scary outward appearances before you. My friends, remember what we're trying to do right now is trying to figure out how to properly read and apply this very familiar story And we've said that it's going to help us to understand how David is functioning as a character in it. And so we just saw how he serves as Israel's conscience. Now, after he gets Saul's blessing to represent Israel, he goes out onto the battlefield to function as Israel's champion. But what we're going to see is that not everyone shares the same definition of the kind of champion that the Lord is going to use to achieve his purposes. Everyone has a different idea of what is a champion. So let's return to the story. Saul hears about this young man who's willing to take up the challenge, so he wants to see David for himself. Now, when Saul finally gets a look at David, he doesn't see a champion. In his eyes, he sees a kid. That means Saul's working, of course, with the assumption that God's chosen deliverer is going to be defined by strength and stature. Saul, like everyone else, can't see past outward appearances. So when he actually does consent to David representing them as Israel's champion, Saul wants the boy to at least look the part. 
And so in verse 38 it says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and he clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword, that's Saul's sword, over his armor, Saul's armor. Now, this scene, by the way, is quite ironic. Because by dressing David up in his kingly armor, Saul is unintentionally moving along the main plot of this story. As this chapter, we said, is, its immediate purpose is to narrate the larger story of this transition of kingship between Saul now on to David. Some commentators think there's actually probably a self-serving motive here behind Saul's generosity to offer up his armor. Perhaps it would just be a way for him to take a little bit of credit if somehow, some way, this boy does succeed. But David ends up rejecting this offer. He, he, he doesn't put on Saul's armor and sword. Instead, he heads out onto the battlefield with a sling in his hand and five smooth stones in his pouch and his shepherd's staff in his other hand. Now notice with me how there is this particular emphasis here in this section on the fact that David is not relying on a sword. A sword, of course, being an instrument of human ingenuity and representing human strength. So David's refusal to use a sword is another way to say that he's not going to rely in this battle on human ingenuity and strength. See, see, later on, if you look at verse 43, Goliath is offended that David shows up to fight him without a sword. He's like, what, what, you, you come to me with just a stick in your hand? And that's his derisive way of describing David's shepherd's staff. He's like, where's your sword? He's expecting someone to come at him with a sword. And then in verse 45, David points out how, Goliath, you're too dependent on the sword. And then in verse 50, the text specifically mentions that there was no sword in the hand of David. Now the pointing out of the absence of a sword in David's hand is to show really how overmatched he was compared to Goliath. It was to stress how David was not the obvious choice as the people's champion. He, he would have been considered by everyone that day to be the foolish choice, to be the weak choice. I, I know some have tried to argue that David was actually a strategic choice to face Goliath and that the same could be said about his weapon of choice, the sling, that actually it was, it was the smarter weapon to use. I'm thinking of, of Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. Um, the subtitle of David and Goliath is Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And Gladwell, if you've read you know, his, his books, he, he's a great writer, uh, very interesting um, uh, theories. And so his thesis, when he talks about David and Goliath and, and, the, and the familiar story, is that, and, and the, 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 really the point of the whole book of his is that sometimes what appears to us to be a disadvantage actually turns out to be to our advantage. The, the thesis of the whole book is that weaknesses sometimes end up being our strengths. And so, likewise, he's arguing that David has all of these hidden advantages, like his speed compared to this you know, big, towering Goliath. And, and, and he has disguised strengths, like 
his deadly accuracy with the sling and how it's a, it's a long-distance weapon so he can be able to, to avoid Goliath's uh, reach. So he may not be as overmatched as we might think is the thesis. Maybe he's not an underdog after all. Maybe he's, he's the stronger one on the battlefield. Well, it's an interesting thesis, but I really do think that's, that's reading too much into the story and, and, and perhaps missing the actual point. I, I don't think you're supposed to read this portrait of David and conclude that, oh, he's got some sneaky strengths that Goliath doesn't, doesn't, doesn't recognize. Now, David himself makes it clear that he wasn't going into battle relying on some hidden advantage. Listen to what he says he relies on. He tells this to Goliath in verse 45. Listen to uh, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So unlike Goliath, who relies on instruments of human ingenuity and strength, David relies on the Lord of hosts. The Lord is what gives him courage and optimism, not these hidden strengths. David's trust is in the powerful name of the Lord. And he goes on in, in verses 46 to 47 to tell Goliath, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth, listen to this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So the point is that David doesn't beat Goliath because his quote-unquote weaknesses are subtly strengths, and that he actually turns out to be the stronger character in the story. No, no, the, the narrative is trying to make every effort to communicate that David actually is weak. And the choice of a shepherd boy as your champion actually is foolish. But friends, that's exactly how the Lord saves. By using the weak to shame the strong. By using the foolish to shame the wise. Now why does God do that? Why does he save that way? It's because he's sending a message. Did you see that? Look back at verse 46 and 47. And note, two audiences in view. There's a message for two audiences. David tells Goliath that the Lord is going to deliver you into my hand, as improbable as that sounds, because he has a message, first of all, for all the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So David's victory will be a word of gospel to the unbelieving world. If you're not yet a Christian. Friend, this story of David and Goliath is telling you that you are building your life on the wrong foundation. You're relying on human strength, a strength that will eventually fail. As you grow older, as you age, your strength will fade, and then one day death will steal it completely away. And so the only one whose strength will never fade 
and never fail is the Lord. He's the firm foundation that you can trust, that you can build your life upon. So the first audience is the unbelieving world. And the message in this story is to know and to trust in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. Now the second audience is the people of God. This improbable victory is going to send a message to Israel that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. So friends, that means this victory serves as a word of correction for God's people. The story of David and Goliath is a rebuke of our fixation on human strength and outward appearances. Even to this day, the people of God continue to measure success in our churches and in our ministries by metrics that are solely tied to outward appearances. We're so focused on attendance numbers and on the size of our budgets, and we assume that God only achieves his purposes through big things, big churches, and, and big, impressive, charismatic leaders. The story of David and Goliath is a needed word of correction for the church, calling us to repent of a dependence on worldly strength and a, and, a, and a fixation on outward appearances and reminding us that God can accomplish mighty things with weak people in small churches. This story reminds us that God loves to use the weak, the shamed, the strong, and the foolish to shame the wise. I hope that's an encouraging, comforting message and word for you. So we've seen how David functions in this story as the people's conscience, convicting them for their lack of faith and vision. He serves as the people's champion, challenging their assumptions for who God can and will use to achieve his purposes. Now let's consider how David functions in this story as the prefigured Christ. Now, what do we mean by that? What's a prefigured Christ? We remember that the word Christ is a title. It's not a last name. It means the anointed. So long before Jesus the Christ came on the scene, David prefigured him. He foreshadowed him. David serves the overall story of Scripture by pointing forward to another who is to come. David's battles and victories, his life and kingship contribute to the larger concept for us to understand who is God's anointed one. David gives us a better grasp of who Christ is and how he is one day going to fight and defeat our greatest enemies, that is sin, death, and the devil himself. As I mentioned earlier, our instinct is to read ourselves into the story as David. We assume that we should be identifying with the central figure in this narrative because we're the central figure in our own stories. But if David is actually the prefigured Christ, then a proper interpretation places Jesus in the center stage. He is the David figure, and we are the cowering Israelites. When faced with the enemy, with, with sin or with Satan, just like the Israelites, we really have no answer. We have no chance of success. We, we can only stare at each other in disbelief, in fear, 
in doubt. But thanks be to God that we do have a champion in Christ Jesus. You see, like David, Jesus stepped forward to do what no one else would, what no one else could. Like David, Jesus was a weak choice, a foolish choice, because he too rejected the sword. In fact, he chose to carry no weapons in his hands because his strategy was to win by losing. His plan was to achieve victory by being defeated. Because his plan was to experience the defeat that we, his people, actually deserve. He functioned as our champion, as our representative, and in doing so, he took on our sins and he counted them as his own and he accepted defeat for us. But by his blood, he forgave our sins. And by his death, he conquered death and he disarmed the devil. He won. And his victory means victory for all of God's people. His triumph is counted as our triumph. That's how this battle works. Church, it's in light of your champion's victory over your greatest enemy. In light of that reality, now you can engage your own enemies. And now you can face your own set of obstacles. You can continue the good fight of the faith knowing that the final victory is already won. That knowledge, that perspective is going to make all the difference for you. All the fear, all the anxiety that we typically feel can be replaced by a deep joy and a blessed assurance because we're no longer engaging all the various battles in life with an uncertain victory in front of us. Rather, we are engaging those battles with a decisive victory behind us, already won by our champion. And that change of perspective really is all the difference. You know, when we're studying this text, we usually focus our attention on this epic showdown between David and Goliath and all the events that, that lead up to it. But rarely do we really think about what immediately happens afterwards. So imagine with me, if you are a soldier in the army of Israel that day. Now, before the battle begins, you're understandably nervous. You've got to fight the Philistine army, and they've got a giant on their side. And so you're feeling scared. You're feeling overwhelmed. You're totally underprepared. But then someone tells you that, that someone has volunteered to be Israel's champion, to, to engage in representative combat on your behalf, and you are relieved to hear that you won't have to get into the fight. But when you see your champion step onto the battlefield, a shepherd boy armed uh, without any armor and armed only with a sling and a staff, well, all that fear and all that anxiety overtakes you once again because up against a giant, this kid has no chance. The odds don't look good. But when the dust settles... It's your champion who's standing victorious over his fallen opponent. And suddenly, there is a resounding shout of victory 
on your side and trumpets are blaring. A battle cry is issued and you and the rest of the army go rushing down into the valley in hot pursuit of the retreating enemy. Now think about it, friends. The victory is won. The enemy is defeated. But you still need to subdue them. And they're still going to put up a fight. There's still going to be these smaller skirmishes that you're going to have to face. That's what the Israelites do in the rest of the chapter. And you might still get wounded along the way. There might be some, some pain involved, some, some, some challenges, some difficulties. It's not going to be a cakewalk. But it's a very different experience engaging the enemy with an uncertain victory in front of you versus engaging the same enemy with a decisive victory behind you. Do you see the difference that it makes to rush into battle, right into the thick of things, knowing that your champion has already won and that the victory is already yours? It's all the difference. It's all the difference. So friends, that's the same perspective that we need to embrace when we are engaging enemies and facing obstacles in our own life. Your champion has already won. The victory is already yours. You need to preach that to yourself every day. There are going to be smaller battles and skirmishes that you're going to have to experience. You will need to persevere through them, but you aren't going to have to muster up the faith and the courage that you need for those battles. Instead, faith and courage are just going to be the natural response to the decisive victory that your champion has already won for you. Your heart will have been changed. And now, now you're ready to imitate. Now you're ready to be like David. Father, thank you for this word to remind us of a familiar story, but to help us to see it and, and hopefully just a new way to be able to understand how we are to rightly read and to apply this truth, this story into our lives, into the various challenges that we face, the obstacles and the battles before us. Help us, Lord, to remember that the battle, the victory is already won in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you and worship you. All this in your name. Amen.